to A Thinker's Guide to the Apocalypse. In our first season, you and I are uncovering what the archetype of the apocalypse has to teach us, particularly in these times of disruption, pain, and uncertainty. As we explore the psychological meaning, we're going to dive deep into your inner world so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. Miss Psyche, a lonely librarian, once explained to Nakata, who was a lonely cat catcher. She said, memories warm you up from the inside, but they also tear you apart. And that's a line I really love from Haruki Marikara's Kafta on the Shore, which is a, I don't know how to explain it. It's worth a read. It's strange and beautiful and heartbreaking, but also I don't know. It's that kind of beautiful heartbreak that feels really good, if that makes any sense. It's worth a read. But back to memories, you and I, like Miss Psyche, we find a myriad of ways to avoid them. We speed through life, we fill it with work, and focus on everyone who was not us. Our partner, our children, our cats, maybe our dogs, Friends, constructed characters that flicker on our TV or our phone screens, politicians who are fucking everything up. And even when we sink into our memories, many of us have the habit of rewriting the memory, smoothing the rough edges, adding a sheen of adoration, or if you're me, melancholy, anything to obscure the reality of both the ordinary and the horrific. And so when life comes to a standstill, which incidentally is almost always a sign of the impending apocalypse, whether personal or global, when it comes to a standstill and we're forced to slow down, memories claw their way to the surface, bringing with them anxieties and the raw grief over how things used to be. In our fourth episode of the season, The Waiting, you and I were grinding to a halt We're going to pay attention to what happens when survival demands stillness and consider what we are meant to do in the in-between. Today, we're going to toggle between the intellectual rhapsodizing, although I don't know how you rhapsodize about how, we're going to toggle between that and the pain of memory. And because I'm the only one with a microphone right now, it's the pain of my own memory. And I've been sort of kind of like in the back of me, I think of my brain as many things, but sometimes I like to think of it as like an office space with an apartment above it. And in the office space, there's a conference room with all of these parts of me that have thoughts and theories about what we ought and ought not to be doing. Some are kinder than others. But at that table, I've been debating, do I want to take this risk with you all? With some of you, I guess I know, I'm assuming I know, and some of you I don't. 
And it, it's strange to be in a relationship where I only have projections of you. I only have imaginings of you. And you only have a part of me, the part of me that I am willing to bring and speak into the microphone, a part of me that as much as I may try to be authentic and honest and vulnerable is still glossed over, is still literally edited, is still sometimes scripted. And so I've been debating this, and all of what I just said is sort of an evasion, because I've been debating whether or not it's okay for me to share my tender, my vulnerable, the edges of my own trauma. And it, it feels multifaceted to wonder why within me there is the therapist, right, who spends a lot of time sharing myself with others in ways that are authentic, that are not as glossed over as even this is. And I only share when it feels clear that it will serve them, that my own stories, my own experience, my own wisdom is offered not for me primarily at least, but for them to help people walk through a journey and to lend whatever parts of myself would be helpful. And that's not to say I don't get things out of being a therapist. I, I love my job. I feel very at home there. However, <laughs> I also, when I'm not sitting in the therapeutic seat the consultation room is what the literature calls it. Um, when I'm not in the consultation room as therapist, I, I spend a lot of other time torn simultaneously to wanting to unpack my own pain, to make sense of it, to get my hands in it. As I say to clients to sit in my own shit, which sounds grosser actually <laughs> saying it to you, but, but I think you know what I mean. I, I spend a lot of time there, but also Simultaneously, in that time, I have this urge, this desire, wanting to vacuum seal it shut and shove it away, hide it away in a closet in the basement. If there could be a basement of the basement, that is where I'd want to put it. So I don't ever have to come close to it again. And so today feels tricky because I know myself. I know that I can give you my intellectual musings of what hell is and how we avoid it. And I have these questions I want to engage with you and share with you. And then I have this memory that tears me apart. And I feel really clear. I don't want to cry on the podcast, although I can already feel them on the edges and my tissues are across the room and I don't want to pause and get them. Maybe I will, or maybe I'll just use my sleeve. Lots of people use their sleeve when they cry as a way to avoid admitting that you're crying. And so today I'd ask, even though we're new to each other, that you may be tender with me. And maybe by being tender with me, you can practice being tender for yourself. And so, I guess that was my second introduction. Let's start in the present. Let's start with a fairly psychological and intellectual question. It's easier, at least for me, to enter in with my brain. And the question to begin with is, what do we do to avoid the hell in our lives? And I guess we probably should even talk about like what actually is hell. We talked, I think, a little bit about it in this preseason of how I was literally raised with hellfire and brimstone and this 
taste of sulfur seems to permeate my imagination. So hell, it could be many things. Certainly, if you are a literalist, it is an actual place. The Bible doesn't actually really talk specifically about hell, although you literalists can come back and be like, no, Jen, here's this verse and this verse and this verse. I didn't research this coming in today. Maybe I should have. But hell in the Bible, often how it is pictured, at least how Jesus pictured it, was of Gehenna, which was the trash dump of town. It's where you went to burn your refuge. And and that was the image of hell, is that you would go to the garbage. You would go away and burn forever. And I'm not entirely sure how all the images were amplified growing up. I know that they were. And it's interesting, actually, that I can't recall any specific verses right now of hell. But the idea was that you would be separated eternally forever. It would be pitch black. There'd be nothing to see. You would be alone. There would be no one around. The story of Lazarus thirsting for water it's not Lazarus, it was the rich man. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. Gosh, I'm getting my Bible stories all mixed up, you guys. But the idea was that you would thirst. You would be so dehydrated, so so dried out that you wouldn't even be able to sweat. You would have no way to cool yourself. You would have no way to soothe yourself. Hell was where you got trapped. And whether or not it's a literal place and I don't know. Today, I don't think it's a literal place. The child in me worries about it. Either way, hell as a construct is really helpful. It's helpful because plenty of us spend time there. And the hell of my childhood, it just stopped there. You just were in eternal agony. When I read Dante when I was in high school, like, and I read it on purpose, you guys, which is weird. Someday I'll tell you about all the times I used to go to Barnes & Noble as a way to soothe and have a pretzel and a frappuccino and pretend I was a normal teenager. I remember, though I got, whatever the name of the Divine Comedy, I got Dante's book. I remember reading it and thinking, oh, this is so complicated. I don't know all these people who he's talking about. But the idea that hell would be so structured, that hell would be so complex, really appealed to me. I never ended up making it through all the way because I don't know if you've read Dante, but (laughs) talking trash about Dante, I I just, he's not my cup of tea or maybe heaven wasn't my cup of tea. I never made it to purgatory, never made it to heaven with him. And Beatrice was, I don't know, uh, who cares about her? I mean, he did, but I'm getting way off track. And it's interesting actually, because this question is how do we avoid hell in our lives? We often intellectualize it. We often pretend it isn't there. We often go on these side trails to soothe or to make sense or to just distract ourselves. But the hell, I think, is in us. Maybe not everybody. I often tell clients when we're talking about attachment styles, I... I'm not certain anybody has secure attachment. Perhaps they do and they just don't run in my circles. But 
the idea that you would not have a piece of hell in you, that you could live through this world and not be marked by it, not have places in you that you want to shove in the corner is baffling to me. And what's hard about it is the stuff that gets shoved in the corners is important. It is rich. It is complex. It is highly structured sometimes. And it is vital because it is a part of us. And when we avoid that part of us, we cut ourselves off. We don't have access to everything we need to have access to. And you and I could talk about this forever. We could go into the Jungian construct of the shadow. We could talk more about how that plays out in the archetype full of shadows. But really, that's just another way of avoiding hell. Avoiding hell in a purely intellectual way. Because the memory wants to interrupt this reverie. I squeeze my eyes shut tight as they will go. My face squinches up like a wrung-out sponge. I'm trying not to think about it. Instead, I'm playing a new game I invented just a few weeks ago. I call it the fireworks game. And here's how you play. You squeeze your eyes shut as tight as they will go until you can't stand how it hurts. And then... When you open your eyes, you're blinded by the explosion of color and light. It's beautiful. Not because it hurts, but because something so extraordinarily bright can and does follow the darkest dark you can conceive of. I am five, and I'm playing the fireworks game, so I don't think about hell anymore. I don't want to keep going with that memory, though. I can feel the edges of my tenderness and also the sweetness of how I've been avoiding thinking about hell for ages and ages, over 30 years now, that there's always a way to trick your mind from going to the places you don't want to go. But what I'm wondering as I'm saying that is how in the here and now, how does slowing down, bringing up, illuminate, amplify, Uh, I can't find the right words, how does the waiting bring hell to us? How does staying here show us what we have been hiding from? I don't know if that question makes sense. It's hard to articulate, except I, I feel really clear when we slow down when we can slow the pace of our thoughts, when we can slow the pace of what feels like surface level feelings, things that if we tugged on them would allow us to go deeper, except we keep them as buoys on the ocean of us. When we slow down, hell will creep up. And I think about this when I think about meditation I have a fair amount of anxiety and I work with a lot of people who have a fair, maybe more than a fair amount of anxiety themselves. And often I know that we're getting close to something really painful when maybe not quite the cadence of their words picks up, but the energy behind the words picks up and it feels like we're going faster and I am getting lost because I'm wanting the details the details get glossed over. And I I like the details. They feel grounding to me. 
actually, here's a different memory that just came to me. I remember the first time I started to think, oh, I'm not so sure God is who they say God is. Uh, and fuck, if God is not who he says he is, or they say he is, is he even real? And it, it seemed mind-boggling that God could maybe not exist. And I remember that I was sitting in church, it was a Sunday evening service, and I needed to soothe. And so I looked at the stained glass behind the pulpit, and I looked at the cross, and I looked at the pew, which was brown, I looked at the pew cushion, which was red, and I just recited in myself the cross, the pew, the red, the cross, the pew, the red, and just chanted it in my mind in a way, I don't know if it was to disassociate, which means to go someplace else, to not stay in the moment, or if it was a way to soothe to remind myself of the concrete. See, you guys, I told you I didn't want to cry, and maybe you can hear it in my voice. It's easier to be the intellectual. You can't avoid memories, though. They interrupt even your most brilliant thoughts. Like, when I remember back to when I was five, and I, I remember being in that bed and remembering the first time I had heard about hell. And I heard about it the first time, like you might overhear the argument between two people you really love. You're not paying attention very much at first. You're maybe like me, more focused on drawing tiny little pictures on the back of tithing envelopes. And so when I heard it, it felt more like a door slam than a clap of thunder. And the pastor's voice pierced my attention, and I heard him, and I can still hear him still ringing, for you have kindled a fire, which shall burn forever. I was so startled. And I was a quiet child, so I don't know that anyone saw my startle. It happened inside. And that startle turned into fear. Because my mind started to race, I started to think about how I'd recently burned the tips of my finger on the stovetop, even though my mom had told me never to touch it. It had hurt so much, even though it was just the remnants of heat the stove had been turned off for who knows how long. I had to bite back the tears, because I didn't want her to know that I had disobeyed. That would have burned too but in a totally different way. I couldn't articulate it then, but that burning of disappointing those I love has trailed behind me for as long as I can remember. This isn't the only memory I have of hell, though, or the only memory I have of, of disappointing others, of burning inside, of, of wanting to be someone who I wasn't. I think about hell a lot, both in theological and psychological terms. That makes it sound so impersonal, though. And hell never is. The stories I could tell you uh, of the many places and spaces that hell has either theologically or psychologically invaded would horrify you. And I don't know that it would be healthy for me to share them, because they're, they're memories that still have their claws out, that are still sharp, that 
that would maybe cut me as I tried to share them with you. And maybe, maybe that's an excuse to protect myself, although I'm okay with protecting myself. I, I also think, though, part of the reason that memories of hell are so horrifying is really underneath it, they feel familiar. I think not just to me. I think we all have our own version of hell. And I'm not I'm not wanting to scare you off. I'm not wanting to do what Brené Brown talks about. It's called a flood gating. I think that's right. It's sort of the sense that when you're just getting to know somebody and then they unload all their stuff on you and and you can feel sort of the rise of how much it is to carry and the inclination is often to flee. Or if you grew up in an unhealthy family system, depending on the role you played, the, the impulse might not be to flee, but to run towards, to run into the burning building to save those who suffer. And I'm not, I'm not wanting to do that to you. I pay attention to my own stuff. I work on it. And the part of me, though, that has lived through hell and lived through many iterations of it is really genuinely curious of what your hell might be, whether it's relational, family that has been painful in a myriad of ways, not because they don't love you, although perhaps they don't, but because even if they do, they weren't highly skilled at loving. And love is it's hard. It's hard to be in relationship in a way that holds one close, but doesn't imprison them and who allows someone to have their distance without losing the connection. It's very challenging, I think, to maneuver complex relationships. And I say that not only because it can be challenging for me and it's something I work a lot on, but I find again and again, the people that I sit and talk to as we talk about connection, even when it looks pretty good on the surface, there is pockets of emptiness that come with it. Humans are so complex that they don't just fit together like puzzle pieces. It's a way to start to, I don't even have the metaphor for it. I have a metaphor for everything. It's not Velcro, it's more complicated than that, but there's all of these pieces. It's, it's having to puzzle piece your way in so many different ways. And now I'm rambling, but maybe, maybe your hell happened in the family you grew up in, where your parents didn't show up for you in the ways you needed, it, or maybe they showed up for you in ways that were profoundly painful. They really fucked things up with their anger or their coldness or their own struggles that blinded them to yours. Maybe for you, you have a series of relationships or maybe just one where romance and that romantic love that is so complicated and beautiful just didn't seem to work for you, didn't work for you in the way that you needed it to, and in fact, reminded you more of places you've been in pain before, but they're like this memory that tricks at the back of your mind that you can't quite grasp. In fact, I've been having this, this very like 
gentle, soothing, mothering voice in the back of my head that like is tickling there and I can't grasp quite what it's saying or where I heard it. And I've been going down the Rolodex of what TV shows and books and things I've been reading, like what media have I consumed? And I I still can't find it. When I do, I'll tell you about it. Maybe your hell though is none of that. Maybe relationships are not as complicated for you as I'm making them sound for others. Maybe for you, it's vocational. How do you figure out what you do for work? And not just work, but work that doesn't make you want to bang your head against the wall for hours on end. Work that doesn't make you chant to yourself how miserable you are. Or maybe it's work that you think you love, and yet you can never seem to really skillfully do. It's work that's actually really misaligned with who you are, but you've become so obsessed with the idea, you can't let it go. Maybe you long for a calling. Maybe you long for a soulmate. Maybe maybe you're just frightened of the existential realities or nightmares that seem to haunt our landscape. Maybe existential crisis after existential crisis tears you down. That you can stay in the weightiness of the ways the world will end. The ways environmental crises, political crises, human rights crises. We could keep naming crises. Maybe that's where your mind stays. Maybe that's where your heart breaks. And yet, hell might be in what's underneath your attachment to all of that. Maybe underneath the attachment to your partner, to a career that is more vocation, to saving the world. I don't know. I'm not inside your brain. You might not be inside mine either, but maybe you're savvy to my avoidance maneuvers. Because I'm just thinking, oh, we could keep talking about this. I could keep speculating on what keeps you miserable. What do you hide away inside yourself? But all this talk of you, especially given that you're not here to respond, it's just another way, I think, for me to stall the memories from creeping back in. I just got my tears under control and feeling more grounded. But I, I can only avoid my memories by focusing on you for a little while. They always creep back in. So the pastor, the pastor went from quoting the prophet of Jeremiah to talking about some person named Satan. I'd never heard of him before, but apparently he was really, really, really bad and really, really mean. He was the one who kept you trapped in the fire because of the sins you did. I wasn't quite sure what sin was then, except it had maybe something to do with displeasing adults. And apparently it made Satan come after you. He would trap you in flames. He would burn you up. And then there were worms that ate you inside out forever and ever and ever. And you couldn't even cry because you were so thirsty. Your body couldn't even make tears. Monsters were real. And as I was laying in that bed, I just knew they were waiting for me. Not under the bed, not even in the closet, but on the edges of hell, which seemed to be everywhere. 
These monsters, the pastors called them demons or evil spirits. But whatever they were, they were ready to grab my feet and drag me down into their depths. No matter how hard I pressed the pen down on the paper, I couldn't drown out the pastor's voice. So I drew the monsters on my tithing envelope, Satan in the starring role. They bore an uncanny resemblance to the adults who surrounded me. Avoiding hell and the memories of it is something I'm very skilled at. It makes me actually very good at my job. I can catch people who employ any number of clever maneuvers to avoid the pain. I love, I don't know where he put it, but I always see this quote on the internet, and it is what initially inspired me to read Steinbeck, and I love how he put it. He said that death is an intellectual matter, but dying is pure pain. Hell is a kind of dying. It's, it's pure pain. It's pure feeling. And all these clever maneuvers are just defenses. I'm seeking to turn pain into something manageable and containable. And I'm not alone in that. But what happens when your clever maneuvers that aim to help you escape just bring you right back to it? It's the groundhog day of the soul. And I'm doing it again. I'm, I'm finding a way to stall. I'm finding a way to intellectually avoid. Because I know everything about this memory within a memory is getting darker and more vulnerable and has just been a prelude. And maybe this is more vulnerable than I want to be with you. Fuck. But we have to finish. And the rest of the telling is worth very little if I don't follow through. The memory starts like this. I'm playing the fireworks game. I'm squeezing my eyes shut so I won't remember how. I'm trying so, so hard not to think of it. Not to go back to the memories that scared me, that startled me. I'm trying so hard not to remember, but the edges of it keep creeping in. So I switch to a new game. I use my brain. My brain has gotten me out of so much more trouble than my body ever has. And I'm five. I don't know the difference. So I switch tactics and I start to play this new game. A second game to distract me from my thoughts. I'm in my bed. I am... I'm here in my bed. I'm in my room. I'm in my bed, in my room, in this house. I'm in the bed, room, house, on the street where I live. I'm in the bed, room, house, street, in the town, in the state, in the country, in the world, in the universe, in the in the... What comes after universe? Is there anything at all? Is there anyone at all? Or is it all blackness? Only dark. I squeeze my eyes harder. I want the fireworks came to start. But the thoughts keep intruding. Hell keeps creeping in. Who, who would I be in the dark? 
Were there any nightlights there to turn on at all? Were there monsters? Who would turn on the nightlights if they're there? Who would I be? And a sudden thought strikes me. Would I even be me in the place that is bigger than the universe? Would I be anything? Anybody? Who would I be if I wasn't me? Who would I be if I did not exist? I'm so startled by the question. So startled that my eyes fly open. And the firework flames engulf me. Flooding me with color and painful light. I do then what I've been avoiding doing now. I cry. What happens when you enter hell? What happens when you touch the edges of it in you? What happens when you can feel it sneaking up your throat? Or maybe sneaking down your throat into your heart, into the chambers you want to keep locked away? You soothe yourself. You do what I'm going to do. You distract yourself and you think about how I think about how I told a client the other day that it seemed to me what she called hell was the core heartbreak. Hell is what we create to avoid it. It's the thorns around Sleeping Beauty's tower. It will tear us apart to get inside. Seems like the end. Hell seems like it's the end of everything, of who you are, of who you have been, of all your hopes, of all your dreams. But really, it's just a place we journey through, waiting to discover the mystery of our hearts. It's where we discover, if we're brave enough to stay with it, who we would be if we weren't us, if we weren't so haunted by all of what came before, and what we fear will still come. Maybe it's like Voltaire said, The paradise is made for tender hearts, and hell for loveless. I think, though, you only find your tender heart by going through hell, and reclaiming it from the depths of all your major and minor traumas. Hell is the pathway we have to walk to encounter not only the heartbreak, but the healing. I still get scared of hell. I can can feel it. And just telling you that short, small memory. It was ingrained in me very young. And when we're stuck in the waiting, in the liminal spaces where things go from being one way to another, our fears begin to make themselves known in more and more visceral ways. I have many fears. And I have many hopes. I spend time in my hellscape, in the places that pain me, in the places that horrify me, in the places that terrify me. And I spend time in my joy, in the places that delight me, in the places that thrill me, in the places that soothe me. When fear has been compressed and ignored and left alone for longer than wise, it tends to expand. It places pressure on everything. It dismantles our impulse towards life. And if 
if you don't journey through your own hell, the pressure will collapse you. You'll have to come back next week, though, when we're going to explore not only how the fear and the hell inside you distills, we're also going to hopefully discover a revelation. How about when things are profoundly not okay and you can embrace that, reality turns out to be so much more beautiful than you would have ever thought. Thanks for being with me in my tenderness today. Really, I'm grateful for it. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As J.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.